Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the latest attempts to break the deadlock in the Brexit and the US-China trade negotiations, as well as what the price of wheat in the late 18th century has to do with the prospects for investors, with Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. While another week has flown by as we tumble further down the wishing well of Brexit politics, with me at today's Mad Hatter's Tea Party, and grinning like a Cheshire cat, I might add, the always well-informed and occasionally well-dressed William Hobbs. It's been another rocky raid this... Not smiling now, (laughs) Well, it's been another rocky week in, uh, in markets. Negotiations restarted in earnest in both the Brexit and trade war sagas, and that's pretty much gripped all the front pages. Is there much new for us in any of that? I see particularly a lot of people arguing that the chances of a general election are rising. Yeah, Toby, uh, potentially. I mean, the problem here, I mean, we'd always reiterate the... You know, the, the confident predictions here are a sign of ignorance, not the, not the other way. Um, but... Um, and the problem with, with anything we have to say without our Brexpert, Sophie, uh, is that news turns very stale on this subject pretty quickly. Um, now, there is a strand of thinking um, that argues, and this seems to be the consensus at the moment, and like I say, this could change, but there seems to be a strand of thinking that argues that this current proposal that we're seeing, you know, the thing that they seem to be negotiating over is dead in the water, um, and therefore the Ben Act, I think it is an act, isn't it? It is an act, um, forces number 10, uh, or someone related to it, to go, and ask the EU for an extension. Um, They duly grant an extension. um, And um, and in the time uh, uh, in which uh, you get extended, so effectively to January, you have a general election uh, which uh, Prime Minister Johnson wins, um, so the polls tell us, which in turn leads us to an exit without a deal sometime in January. Now, as you can see, there's quite a few assumptions um, in this, um, and particularly with the uh, regards regards to the outcome of an election. So we're probably sort of, I think many people are jumping too far ahead in the queue. And you could also argue, if you think about it, that if the EU see this as a likely strand, then some people are arguing that actually the EU is going to be far keener to deal with Prime Minister Johnson in his current guise than a Prime Minister Johnson who has a large or a parliamentary majority of any sort uh, behind him um, and a majority for exiting the EU without a deal. So, you know, everything's pretty much still on the table, Toby. So the chances of an agreement before the 31st of October are pretty slim. Everybody's going to be able to enjoy their Halloween. What's not going to be the night of the living dead? Well, I mean, I think even in even in even in this sort of case where you know, so if you imagine, you know, there are some saying that you could take something off the shelf. So, say you get a, a Northern Ireland only backstop, which is it's sort of off the shelf because it was discussed previously. Um, even in that situation, you kind of lack the parliamentary hours and days uh, to actually get that through. So you'd still need an extension, even in that scenario. Some people are arguing, but it would be the kind of extension where you know we're almost there on the agreement, so we just need you know a little bit more time uh, so it would be a short extension in mind of sort of getting a deal through uh, so to speak so a slightly different um, slightly different story so we'll take a quick drip across the atlantic then the world's largest economy in the u.s we've seen the chinese delegation return to the negotiating table but there have been noises and threats from both sides it seems so what are you expecting here not much 
In truth, um, I think the best we can plausibly hope for is some kind of mini deal, and that seems to be what China are kind of offering. Um, you know, a small deal to do with agricultural products or something like that. You know, we'll buy more soybeans, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but um, or you know, you could get some, you know, a freeze in the conflict. Now, but either of those things, if you think about it, they might allow the corporate sector around the world, who have been kind of forced to retrench and reorganize a little bit on the basis of these trade tensions, it might allow them to find their feet. A little bit, so even that wouldn't be a bad result. But this is a huge, uh, uh, this is a huge distance away from the grand bargain, so to speak, and mm. um, the likelihood of that transpiring are uh, pretty slim, you'd say. Yes, I mean we thought that for a while, and I think we have discussed it on this podcast, you know. But I think you know that the here, and and forgive me, I know you're going to tease me for this, but Chinese history is instructive here, and I think that something something that people talk about a lot with regards to the Communist Party, um, the Chinese Communist Party, um, is how something called um, the Century of Humiliation still lives very. Uh, it's very present to them still. Now, the century of humiliation is a period between, you know, the middle of the uh, 19th century and the middle of the 20th century when China is kind of subjected to a variety of imperial drug pushing, you know, foreign domination, you know, the opium wars, all that, that kind of stuff. Um, and that's the Communist Party sort of explanation for that, or the official explanation for why that century came about, was because China missed out on the first industrial revolution, the one in the middle of the, uh, the 18th century. And the point about this is that Chinese authorities now, informed by this interpretation of history, are more than extremely keen to operate at the commanding heights of the next industrial revolution, the one we are currently sitting in the foothills of, uh, you know, that in artificial intelligence, robotics, driverless cars, all that kind of stuff. And the feeling is that they're happy to get there by fair means or foul. And if you think about it, in the context of that century of humiliation, they were never going to be very keen to have America right domestic laws on intellectual property and how you treat intellectual property. So it, it always felt like a bit of a, a, a stretch given, you know, the American objectives uh, relative to the, you know, to the to, to the Chinese kind of, you know, feelings about having foreign powers write their law. Naturally so, some might, some might argue. So yeah, a grand bargain does feel like quite an unlikely um, situation. So well then, if the trade tensions have been such a source of economic trouble, do you think growth can continue in the absence of such a grand bargain? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think, you know, one of the problems we've had is um, disentangling the effects of the trade tensions um, from other sort of effects that have been slowing the economy a little bit. Um, The point that we would make is that history shows that, you know, you past periods of kind of... uh, uh, rising tariffs and so on. The world economy has grown. But what you tend to find is that, you know, tariffs... um, and protectionism, they tend to reduce efficiency and competition, if you think about it. So you can sort of, you know, you can sort of extrapolate those and say, well, there's going to be less productivity as a result, because competition and, uh, you know, competition drives that. So I have a question on that. And forgive me if it's economics 101. But I would agree that tariffs and controls and any sort of interference will reduce productivity at an holistic level Mm -hmm. but it may be very useful for the actors in place so domestically if you're imposing these sorts of things on another nation you may benefit the other side may lose on a wholesale basis there is a net loss in productivity but there can be winners in the short run, there can be, I think. And I think what you find is in the sort of, you know, in the globally kind of internet collected space, you, you, you just get lower aggregate productivity and it, it eventually seeps through to everybody. And you're right, you know, in, in, in the short run and, um, you know, you can find 
Um, you know, it, it's almost understandable, isn't it, to protect industries that are struggling, you know, with politicians who are on a four or five year leash. Of well, course, that the, feels like the short run to me. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and if you're on a four or five year leash, you know, the incentives to protect your industries are, are probably a little bit greater. But net net, there, there has been a kind of realisation or a sort of a truth, an economic truth around for some time that protectionism is bad for overall growth, even if you can understand uh, the need to protect certain parts of society and certain businesses, you know, overall. Now, you do me a bit of a disservice by criticising me for giving you grief about your... Every single podcast. Your, 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 <laughs> no, hang on, about your <laughs> predilection for historic hyperbole. But you did write something on LinkedIn, banging on about history again, this time talking about the fall in the price of grain in the 19th century. I actually thought that was a very good article, but perhaps you could explain to those who haven't read it why it was so important. Well, it's back on the subject of protection. And thank you. Thank you. Usually you say like historical rabbit holes or something more offensive than that about my little... And I agree. I preferred the alliteration of historical (laughs) hyperbole. But if you want to go down another rabbit hole, you feel free. Well, here's this rabbit hole. So it's basically... Protectionism is not a new thing, um, obviously. And and, and this isn't the first time. And, And one of the sort of more famous instances is the late 19th century where which saw tariffs to, and this is a period where the UK is the sort of global superpower, you know, the, the whole of the 19th, or much of the 19th century anyway. And towards the end of that century, you see t- tariffs and other barriers to international trade again used to answer, you know, a superficially set, a similar set of problems. Now, many historians have argued, you see this lurch towards protecting domestic industries and activities as a key spur to the long build-up uh, to World War One. Now, interestingly... Um, it is precisely this part of history, strung together with a few other comparable episodes, that is creating kind of so much existential angst um, about China's rise amongst US policymakers. Um, but the bit that's underplayed and the bit that we focus on is, is, is yeah, this sounds really obscure, but it's about a plunge in the price of grain during this period, a plunge in the price of wheat. And interestingly, the US was the driver of this um, price plunge. So basically what had happened is, you know, you've got US farms, US settlers going out um, and settling um, a lot of farms. And they are what you have is scarce labor resources. And you have the Civil War, which interrupts it. So, you know, finishes in 1865. Um, and post-Civil War, you, you, this coincides with a period where you get massive, uh, ma- greater availability of higher quality steel. So you get better railroads, better boats, all those kind of things for transporting the grain and exporting it. But also that comes alongside um, the wider availability of products such as mechanical reapers and chemical fertilizers. Uh, and this provides a huge boost to farm productivity. I'll get to the point, I promise. Now, the point is that grain prices globally, because the U.S. is able to export much more, and it, because the U.S. is labor scarce, they adopt, they adopt this uh, productivity-enhancing innovations like the, you know, the mechanical, um, uh, mechanical reapers and so on, much quicker than Europe, where you've got many more people, and therefore, so on and so on. Now, the price of grain has a dramatic effect. Like I say, in Italy and much of Central and Eastern Europe, newly unprofitable farms are abandoned, uh, with many emigrating to the New World. Denmark, for its part, uses this uh, event to move into higher value farm products. So, uh, you know, they start exporting cheese, eggs and bacon. Britain and Germany, on the other hand, react in a slightly different way. Uh, they, um, they, uh, uh, they opt for um, the use of tariffs to protect their domestic farming. And the story gets significantly more complicated from there because agricultural tariffs sort of leak into industrial tariffs. And then, um, you know, in other areas of the economy, stormier economic times inevitably provide more fertile ground for nativist politics. And this is all exacerbated by an already quite busy top table economic global 
political economic top table, uh, and you know so on and so on. But the point about this is is that it is productivity, the effects of productivity, and the wide ranging kind of ramifications. Um, for you know, for, for for moments when we take these big techn- technological leaps, and what you can find is that all the unintended consequences and stuff like that—it's really a lesson in not being too prescribed about where you try, uh, where you try and uh, gain your exposure to productivity, um, and probably lessons for economies in how to deal with industrial revolutions. So a lot of things for people to learn about the intellectual revolution, the, the, the current industrial revolution, technological revolution that we're going through now, perhaps. And uh, anybody can just find that by just looking you up on LinkedIn. It's probably one of your most recent posts on, on LinkedIn. That well, is. it's well worth the read. And actually, if you read it, it's a lot more interesting than Will made it sound just then. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but there are some lessons you in there. You finish with a jive. But it's <laughs> and it is well worth listening to. Look, Will, that's all we've got time for. Looking forward to catching up with you again next week. I think we may have Tro- Sophie Traherne, our Brexpert, yes. Brexit expert, back Thank- back for thankfully, that. Yes, thankfully, yes. Thankfully. Um, <laughs> Thank you for another insightful uh, look at this week's Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.